You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Finishing chapter 10 of Hebrews this morning. Oh boy, this one is, uh, I'll explain to you in a minute. We'll get to it. <laughs> All right. The author of this now has, he's reached his fourth warning, okay, of this letter. And he's, he's, he's addressing consequences to his readers returning to a life of false worship under the old covenant, okay? So he, we saw last week that he issued these let us exhortations right the three let us right draw near gather they they were directing the believer to stand firm in this this faith in the blood of jesus all right so and to continue a hold fast their confession of hope in the resurrection of jesus okay so we get to this section i'm gonna i'm gonna read it and i'm gonna say let's see was i started studying this section like a like t- eight days ago, okay. So before last Sunday, even this is a great example to teach you guys on on interpretation and hermeneutics, okay. So let's just read twenty six through thirty one in chapter ten real fast, where he's he said he just got done. Let us all these things right for if. Right? For if we go on sinning deliberately, some, some translations say willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right. Okay. Before we, we, we need to know the issue being addressed here. And the issue is a word called apostasy, all right? Com- commentators agree on that. This is a warning for apostasy, but they do not all agree on what apostasy is or who this is being directed to, which means we have different views, all right? So, uh, you know, when, when there's different views, I'll tell you a simplistic, all right? There's an Arminian view. It says apostasy is a Christian losing their salvation and then and being damned to 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 hell. All right, 
Well, we, we would say, though, we know this isn't true because Jesus has, just in verse 14 of this chapter, he has perfected believers forever by his sacrifice on the cross, right? And 10.14. Now, there's a lordship view. Lordship view, they say an apostate is someone who's pretended to believe, so they're a fake Christian. They're an unbeliever who acts like a believer for a while then falls away, and then they're, they go to hell. Okay. Now, the common thing in those two views is that both of them go to hell, right? But in one view, one loses their salvation, and in the other view, they never had it to begin with. So the, it's confusing because the apostate's position never changed in the lordship, lordship view because he was already on his way to hell anyway. Right? He was already a sinner. <laughs> what, what did he then fall away from? Right? Then there's a free grace view. And that says an apostate is a Christian who turns their back on Christianity. They fall away from their fellowship with the Lord, and then they come under temporal judgments while they're alive. We looked at that a little bit in chapter 6. We've looked at all this in chapter 6. Chapter 6 in this parallel great, okay? As far as the structure and what he's doing and who he's writing to. So, at first, I was thinking, I don't think there should be in a debate on who this is addressed to. But then I saw, there, I came to see there is much debate on that and also on the outcome that's being taught here, right, in this teaching. So, it's just like in chapter 6, we, we have to understand what we're dealing with, all right? So, here, I'm just going to pause for my notes to say, we all have presuppositions, we all assume, right? So, first, when I started that, just for if we go on sinning deliberately, that just, right? This is, well, it has to be a Christian then. There's no longer remain sacrifice for sins. So this is, has to do with somebody backsliding or losing their salvation or, or whatever, right? Different things. That verse is used out of context all the time. It's just that verse right there, just 26. If you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains sacrifice for your sins. We know that's not true. It can't be because, one, you can't lose your salvation. So if you're, we've been through this too, right? So many times. That part, eternal security. Also, you're not going to want to willfully or deliberately sin and keep on doing it. And that's not the sin it's talking about here. And we'll get to that in a minute. So <laughs> I had to wrestle with this text because of my presuppositions that I've had from growing up. And then from all the stuff that I read, and I'm like, why is everybody making this so confusing? Like, why? Right? So just like in chapter 6, we have to know we're dealing with a group, okay, uh, that are they Christians or are they not? Right? That's what we have here. I gave you both, both views in chapter 6. This could be this or it could be Christian. It could be this way. And I did bring the temporal judgment type of view which I really don't, and I said, I uh, don't really see much. I, I went back, I read it, I listened to it to make sure I don't contradict myself here. <laughs> it's easy to do sometimes, right? So the text should be simplistic in context, okay? This is what you, I, I would teach you on reading the Bible as a whole and anywhere. The key here is context, all right? And it seems the issue that I've ran into 
with, with reading others and comment, commentators and all this other stuff is that when people start asking, what's the applicability for today, right? How does this apply to me today? And is it the Christian or is it not a Christian? And a lot of people, and I would say it's, 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 we'll get to it. Maybe though, maybe sometimes there's just not applicability to you when it comes to scripture for today. There are some scriptures that have no applicability, all right, for you. It just doesn't. You, you could make one if you wanted to, all right? That's why I don't do those sermons that I've told you. It's been, by the way, it's been three years since we've been here. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> you remember, though, that first sermon? I was like, I'm not going to tell you guys that you're David and that you have some giant in your life. All right. We all have problems and issues in our lives, but you're not David because David was a type of Christ. You know, Jeremiah, like, you know, for I know the plans the Lord has for you. Well, I mean, we can apply something like God wants good things for us, but there's going to be bad things that happen as well. You're not Jeremiah. Right. <laughs> and in context, if you keep on reading, you don't want. <laughs> right. Okay. That's why I don't really give you application a lot of times. So just as the context in chapter 6, we saw that on the surface, on the surface, we can just go straight to thinking always when we read in the Bible, this is for believers and believers only, right? And as I said then, the language doesn't have to be referring to authentic believers there or here as in to them and to them alone, all right? I said the key here is context, all right? So even going up a few verses, going a few down, that's considered, but you also have to uh, consider the full context of the letter itself and the theme, all right? And that is that this was written to a group of Jewish Christians being heavily influenced by Jews who were present, right? The Judaizers. And they're trying, they're, they're wavering. They want to go back to the old covenant. So the, old, the whole letter has been the argument of why Jesus is better and superior. And don't listen to these people. All right. So the sinning deliberately or willfully here is a specific sin. All right. So a lot of people want to go, we want to throw anything at this on here, which means we would impose it onto the text but we can't do that with this verse. It would be doing the text a disservice, all right? So while in a sense, we can't, many can argue that, that most of it, when we sin, it's, it is willful or deliberate almost, right? It is, all right? Most can argue that, some are gonna deny it, but here the writer is speaking of something that's much more severe than just what we would consider, you know, uh, Tom going to the bar like last week, who we mentioned. <laughs> Right. It has nothing. All right. Adam Clark said and our Adam Clark was like he's Armenian. It, it has nothing to do with a common term that many refer to today as backsliding because a man. Right. May be overtaken in a fault. He may be in a sin for a moment of time, but never renounce the gospel nor deny that the Lord had that bought him. Right. And he said, this is a dangerous place to be, but it's not hopeless, as this text seems to point out. 
So the sin here, as, as the case has been for this whole letter, is abandoning the new covenant, returning to the life under old covenant practices. So this whole time, there's been those in the community debating, arguing, contemplating, wavering, right? Persecution is becoming worse than it has ever been. And these people are like, well, there's comfort and familiarity in the temple and with those priests and the sacrifices. This sin then rejects Jesus because these people have made a deliberate choice to reject what they have been taught because it says they've been taught because they've received, received the knowledge of the truth. They've been enlightened. They've partaken in certain things, just like in chapter 6. They know the contrast that the, the writer has been presenting. All right, so for me to do this right, I would just say I have to simply leave it in its historical, uh, grammatical context and leave it there. That, that's, that's the best way to do it. Just exegete it like that. That's how you do scripture. So I'm not going to spend all morning making a case for this or for that, but simply say that within the context and the theme and considering the original audience, those are the things that we know for sure. That rejecting the new covenant would be rejecting Jesus. Accepting the new covenant, but still relying on many things of the old, all the rituals, the priests, sacrifices, is a mixing. We know this, it's a mixing, and that would still be a rejection because it's not accepting it as it is as a whole. So the sin then does three things, which is mentioned in 28. It trampled underfoot the son of God. And that was a strong, a strong term used in scripture in order to convey the sense of the, the outrage involved in forsaking Christ and returning to Judaism. It prof profaned the blood of the covenant, he says, and that means that these people then counted the blood of Jesus to just be common. It's no, of no greater importance than, than of the animals. And thirdly, it outraged the spirit of grace, which would be to insult uh, or offend the Holy Spirit who presents Jesus and his work to us. So there no longer remains a sacrifice for this, and what the author is doing there is referring to the sacrifices that were performed under the old covenant so he can draw upon a principle that was found in the law. All right. Because in the law, there were certain offenses. Murder was one. OK. That were not covered by a sacrifice. All right. The law of Moses made no provision for the person who intentionally committed some of these sinful acts. And the writer calls this setting aside the law of Moses in verse 28. Therefore, the writer asks in 29, what, what should they expect then if they forsake the new and the greater covenant? Right? If the Jews under the old covenant faced a severe penalty for failing to obey the truth, what consequences do you think awaits them who rejects the new covenant then? That's the point. And I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> 32 and 33 but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. All right, so we have 26 through 30, 31 is a stern warning against this apostasy. And then there's these words of confidence that come afterwards through the rest of the, this, this uh, chapter. And he, he says to remember the past, continue to be faithful until the end. And our, so our author rebukes and then he gives comfort and encourages. Again, it's just like the theology and structure of Hebrews 6. All right, and six, four, eight, severe warning, followed immediately in nine through 12 by, by these reassuring words of comfort and confidence. And of you have labored, you have labored and ministered in the past, so keep on being faithful, don't give up. All right, so to, to people who, after years of faithful service, were growing impatient, right? To a people who, by, by reason of external pressures, were being tempted to turn their backs. And to go back, he says in 32, recall those former days because the memory of the past was designed and intended by the author to provoke perseverance for right then in that moment in the future. So big pause. Okay, now you're going, wait, was the believers, the non-believers, and now back to believers. <laughs> is anyone doing that? Okay, <laughs> right? This is when you have to pay attention to yourself, remind yourself, Again, the key here is context. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians being heavily influenced by Jews who were present. So when they read this letter aloud, all was hearing it. So it was, they would know, okay? So remember, you endured before. You can do it again. Remember what God has brought you through in the past is what he's saying. 34 and 35. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. All right, 34 further explains 33. And also in other translations, it actually says you had compassion for me in my chains, implying that this author had been in prison. All right. But what he says here is you visited these people, although in doing that, you ran a risk of being imprisoned yourself because you were a showing association. Not only did you have compassion for those in prison, you also joyfully accepted the plundering of your property or goods. You didn't care. <laughs> and the, the words that are used here in Greek had uh, was in the tense of like mob violence that was happening. This, this was mob violence and they, they praised God over it. They were like, we must be doing something right. <laughs> That's how people today look at it. The eternal reward, actually, I would say that in the first century, to first century believers, the eternal reward was so real to them that they could lightheartedly bid farewell well, well to freedom or material possessions, which were short-lived in any case because of what they had in, in heaven was better and enduring and people were being killed and imprisoned, all right? <clears throat> it, it's those godly attitudes and those actions that the, the writer bids them to remember, right? Because it would be absurd for them to consider the possibility of abandoning any of this now amidst this, this struggle because he's saying you've endured so much why would you turn back now 36 and 39 
for you, uh, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Again, we have that, this other thing. We'll, we'll hit upon it in a minute. If he shrinks back, like, what's going on? Like, why? Okay. They were to seek, they were not, sorry, they were not to seek escape from their trials or their pressures by turning away from Jesus. And the writer says, you have need of endurance. He knows he needs it. He knows they need to be strengthened. And, and he calls them to remember their past faithfulness, and, all right, they were being, there was persecution that was going on. And now it's ramping up again. Imprisonment, uh, plundering, uh, death, and all that. So uh, he calls them to remember that. But he appeals to Habakkuk to, to reinforce, this ex, uh, reinforce this exhortation. All right, so to end that chapter with understanding this, to understand the text from Habakkuk, right? So you got to go back to that book, which is like five books before Matthew, I think. Habakkuk chapter one and two, there's this dialogue, all right, that's between him and God. And in the first chapter, Habakkuk is concerned about the wickedness of his people, Israel. All right, so this is uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, uh, 2 through 4. I'm going to go through various texts there up to chapter 2. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. All right. So he's saying to God or asking to God, how long are you going to let this go on, God? And the answer comes in verse Verses 5 through 11 it surprises him because God says he's going to chasten uh, his people by using the Chaldeans. In 1 6, for behold, I am raising up the, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to, to seize dwellings that aren't their own. And so Habakkuk gets mad. He's upset. He can't understand this. In 1 13, he says, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Again, he's like, well, how can you use this people who are wicked to chasten Israel? They're worse than us, Right. So he waits for God to answer him in chapter 2, 1. He says, Habakkuk says, I'll, I'll take my, my stand at my watch post and station, station myself on the tower and look uh, to see, to see what, what he will say to me. And, and I, I will answer concerning my 
He's looking for an I'm sorry, I'm trying to read my handwriting now. That's why I always type. <laughs> Answering concerning my complaint. And then God speaks. He answers them. This is, uh, chapter 2, 2 and 4. He says, the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It ha has, hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. All right. Verses three and four there are the text that the author of Hebrews is using. And God's saying to Habakkuk that I'm going to use the Chaldeans to judge Israel, but don't be discouraged by that because don't be, be shaken by those afflictions and tribulations that you and the people of Israel are about to experience. Why? Do you see, so do you see a similarity here? Because the people of God are suffering affliction and persecution at hands of unrighteous people at the time of, of Hebrews, God, God the, the, or the, the Holy Spirit inspires the author to look back to Habakkuk and say, look, he said, write the vision. I'll, I will judge the Chaldeans as well. So that, 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 that vision then is referred to, uh, to as God's wrath coming to judge the Chaldeans to vindicate the righteous and what they're doing. Right? So... There, it's this coming event, and the author of Hebrew personalizes it because he says he who is coming will come. And I believe this, he was talking about what was fulfilled in 70 AD with the, the uh, coming in judgment on the enemies of his people, vindicating, vindicating his people, the, the, the Christians, uh, in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, removal of all that, and, and Jerusalem. So the point of the text is to reinforce, reinforce the endurance of God's people by reminding them that their, their afflictions were only temporary, right? God was about to judge their oppressors. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 7, it says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, people say that's a end of times text or a, a, a second coming text, but th that when the Lord is revealed from the heaven with his mighty angels, sounds a lot to me like when you see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom that he told, Jesus said to the first century audience there. So I believe this was all first century stuff. So God was about to then judge those who were troubling those saints uh, known as the Hebrews and, and many others as well. He was going to judge those troubling them and the destruction of Jerusalem and in the temple, all right? So, so all of these words that we have in our English <laughs> vocabulary, and then we go here and we read it, the ifs and the we's and uh, all that stuff, it, makes, it can make these very confusing when, when we, it so often, because it happens to me, I do it all the time. 
where I just, I forget about context. I forget about theme and the original audience. If we forget about that, then we'll, we'll, like, we go back and we look right here at verse 38 <clears throat> and go, well, yeah, but it says right here, uh, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. <laughs> right? Yeah, but verse 39 says, but we're not of those who shrink back. It, so in con they're not of those who would willfully sin either, rejecting Christ and the new covenant. Right? It just said, my righteous one, and then it said, if he, and then it says, but we don't. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, this is what I've dealt with for... <laughs> And then you go, oh, a letter has different types of literature. There's literary devices. Two of the most common are rhetorical and hypothetical. The Bible is not void of these things. There's poetry. There's apocalyptic language. There's hyperbole. There's rhetorical devices, hypothetical devices. And we've just been going through them. All right. You have to remember these things along with context and theme to get a better understanding. So he concludes then with this final word of comfort. And this verse is identical then again to, to the ninth verse in chapter six, six. It's an expression of pastoral confidence, right? We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. souls. We are of them who have faith unto the keeping of the life. We need endurance just like they did. All Christians need it. Endurance comes from hope. That hope comes from our faith. So... We, we, that, that must make that uh, we should now I'm going to say it, it must make use then we must make use of the help of our high priest he's granted us that we should take advantage of it so whatever we experience is temporary and the reward for the faithful endurance far outweighs the suffering that we go through so there's never a need to draw back in any way because we are the ones who, who live a life of faith and are, we're rewarded. Now, our eternal life is a reward, but we're rewarded now, too, by being in Christ. Okay? So I did give some applicability there. Any questions, comments, disagreements?